Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Today, it's my great pleasure to welcome to the show, Brian Troutschold. Brian, welcome. Thanks, Jeremy. Appreciate you having me on. Brian is the co-founder and COO of Ambition. Ambition is a sales performance management and coaching platform. Today, we're going to get into how to build a fantastic sales culture, which obviously does have elements of coaching and performance management in it, but it has so much more. And Brian's also got a fairly interesting journey to his own career. So I think I'm looking forward to learning a lot from him. I always start out with two questions. So Brian, I'm going to hit you with the first question, which is what is your favorite sales or leadership book of all time and why? There's two, and, and one's kind of cliche, which is how to win friends and influence people. I think that's should be required reading for any young person joining the workforce, um, but especially in sales. The other one I read a few years ago by Ben Horowitz, which is The Hard Thing About Hard Things. I think I've read that book two, maybe three times actually since it came out and probably five years ago. I think it's a phenomenal book for, for founders, but also for anyone in, in sales or, or in revenue operations. Is there one big takeaway for you from the hard thing about hard things? I think it's really, for me, kind of refreshing to go back and, and read some of these stories about folks who it's easy to look at and say, oh my gosh, you know, Ben did all these things or Mark Andreessen did all these things or, you know, Mark Cranny uh, accomplished all this stuff, but then read about some of the times when they were struggling or they're faced with a tough decision or they had to do a hard pivot. I love that. It's, it's very much creates some empathy with me. I think it's just fun to read those historical accounts uh, and some of the decisions that they've made. Yeah, I feel like I need to reread that one. It's been it's been a little while. And ditto with How to Win Friends and Influence People. I read that many years ago. It was given to me by one of my managers. He's probably trying to give me a hint of some kind, I'm sure. And that book remains, I think, the number one bestseller in its category after decades and decades and decades. So still, still very relevant, still very useful. That one in Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, same thing, just year after year after year. An oldie but a goodie, as they say. Let's do the second question then, which also gives folks a little bit of a chance to know you, which is what's the first thing you ever remember selling in your life? I had a lawn care service in, actually started in eighth grade. I remember that because my mom had to uh, drive me and the co-founder of that lawn service to to jobs that started out like people who we could walk to their house and we would use their lawn equipment, got to the point where we had like a little trailer and stuff. And I did that, you know, through most of college as well. So that was my first real chance to uh, do sales, to like knock on someone's door, to leave flyers with my phone number and have people call me um, to try to figure out how to price a lawn that was small versus long versus big, all that stuff. Taught me a ton gave a young kid in Memphis um, some cash during the summer and, you know, growing up, which was, which was great. Did you ever have any of your, of your customers try to negotiate you down or take advantage of you price-wise? Uh, that's a great question. I'm sure I was taken advantage of. I never felt that way, but um, I think there's something pretty powerful and maybe a little bit disarming about, you know, a relatively young kid coming to your house and asking to do work for you. So at the time, I didn't think that I was being uh, underpaid by any means. It was great at the time. It taught me a ton. Awesome. Well, let, let's get into our topic, understanding how to build a great sales culture, which is something near and dear to your heart, my heart, and the, definitely the heart of sales loft and the lofters and many of our audience as well, of course. And I'm just wondering, how did somebody who, I guess, did their first internship at a 
major bank in wealth management end up in sales performance management and coaching? I was a finance major in college. I was all about doing this whole Wall Street thing. That was like my dream since I was 13 years old. And um, if you're looking at LinkedIn, I graduated college in 2009, which was about a year and a half into the financial crisis. So the worst I'd, possible time to go into finance. Yeah, I've been doing this internship. Was it like an incredibly uh, elite internship? No, but I was, you know, I was doing a lot. I was learning a ton. You know, kind of the writing was on the wall almost, you know, immediately that was, uh, that's not going to have the opportunity right now that, that I thought it would. And so myself and a few other people that I, you know, was graduating with and that I, you know, we were looking at kind of similar jobs. One other guy and I gravitated towards sales and we took a sales job in, uh, for HP before it became HPE. And they moved us to a call center in Conway, Arkansas. And so how I got to where I am today is that the timing wasn't right on my initial dream, which was probably the best thing that ever happened to me. And uh, it turned out that I went to this big enterprise organization that sold all kinds of different stuff that had actually pretty phenomenal sales training, but more importantly, had a pretty terrible sales management, sales motivation, sales engagement process because it was so large, so many people, and it was just fairly dis dysfunctional. And I learned a lot of things that I think now we're attacking, we're trying to help people solve with ambition. So you mentioned first the, the, the positive piece, which was the phenomenal sales training. What was training like at HP? <laughs> training is not like probably how uh, the lofters or the ambitionites do it. Uh, it was going to a very much classroom-like setting. I think it was about eight weeks, if I recall, and they kind of split the day into chunks. And so they'd have like a product expert for portions of the day. And then they would have the true sales trainer where they come in and they talk about words and they talk about, you know, phrasing techniques and they talk about, you know, asking questions, you know, the answer to. And so they really went in depth on some of the techniques that I think are kind of popping back up and really relevant for inside salespeople primarily today. But it was very much classroom oriented. It was very much uh sitting in a room of probably 20 or 40 other people, just grinding through content, if you will. Did you do much role play in the process or it was really just listening and quizzes and things like that? There was that, but it was much more like, you know, the person leading the session would call on someone and say, you know, if you were calling me, how would you open the conversation? If, if I gave you this objection, how would you overcome it? Um, so it was a little bit live, but it was, you know, I don't know how interactive it was. Sure. But I guess a more classical, large company approach to, to training. So you're in the job, but you're in a call center. Are you, is it mostly inbound or you're outbound, a mixture? How was that structured? It had a mix. I was an outbound seller. So I was selling into uh, originally a territory and then I got promoted into selling into um, some specified accounts over time. And so, yeah, I, I was doing all outbound. I was calling people. The difference between uh, that and doing something like ambition, and I'm sure at Sales Loft people could understand this a few years ago, it's a lot different when you're calling and you're saying, hey, this is Brian with HP versus, hey, this is Brian with ambition. And people are like, oh, that's, that's a great uh, quality to have. <laughs> Tell me about it. Uh, yeah, right. Exactly. One of our SDRs was telling me that this is a, a little while back, but they were telling me that when they said Sales Loft, they thought they were pitching real estate at the time. Yeah. <laughs> So what was it about the culture there that didn't thrill you? There was um, some lessons I learned about how you 
coach and manage salespeople, how you um, inspire them. And not that HP was, you know, purposefully bad, but I think the tool set just didn't really exist to do some of the things that we, especially folks who are more digital native, folks who are maybe more millennial, think of as like, you know, the norm today. So metrics and visibility into progress was very limited. Uh, we would do team-based coaching or team-based huddles monthly. That was really the only time that you hear about your performance or your type of um, achievement numbers. It was very unclear as far as where you fit into the alignment of the, of the organization or the performance of your group, how you were contributing and how the, the team's goals were being ticked away towards or, or achieved. So some of these things that we think of as like, you know, incredibly compelling, and I think that uh, creates a lot of alignment and a lot of trust in an organization just were happening. And then as far as how they got people excited, once again, not because of lack of want, they wanted to do the right thing. They just didn't have the tool set. They would have the um, the gong on someone's desk and it's like four rows over. And if you close a deal, you got to like wind your way through the cubicle farm to get to it and ring it. Or a uh, story I tell now, which is true, they have, like I said, more than a thousand people there. They would print out this enormous, long, horizontal um, sheet of paper. If you can remember those giant rolls you'd see, you know, probably in like elementary school, they'd have everyone's name. Um, that was the leaderboard. So they'd print that like once a quarter and they'd roll this thing out. It's probably 20, 40 feet long and it would have every person's performance on it, but there's a thousand names. So if you weren't in the first row or the first column, if you will, you're never going to find your name and you are going to take the time to do it. So as much as I think they had the right intention, how they were trying to motivate folks was uh, less than ideal. Got it. So, so you now have had an opportunity to build culture in, in a few different places. What was the first company that you co-founded? The first company was called Reticker. Uh, myself, the same two co-founders in Ambition, um, Jared Howden and Travis Truett and I, We've been together uh, actually since since college. So we were the guys in the library at the University of Tennessee. We would sneak in beers and then we'd hide out in one of these rooms with like a whiteboard and the great like mini conference room set up and talk about companies we wanted to start. We had no idea how to do that. But, you know, we progressed through probably dozens of ideas. And by the time we'd quote unquote been in our careers for, I guess, a year, two years, we said there's probably no better time than to do it right now and to just to just take the leap. And so we, we started a company called Reticker. We had this belief, which I think has proven out to be right. I think that we weren't the right people to do it, but um, that folks wanted really personalized news. They wanted news that was um, easy to discover where they were, whether that was at their desktop or obviously on their phone and other places. And then we'd learn based on what topics and themes they were reading about, what to suggest. The challenge for us was that as much as that space seemed like it was going to be these e-news readers or these apps, it really became Facebook and Twitter that kind of ate that whole space. And so we learned a ton about building great product. We learned a ton about consumer behavior and how to try to, um, try to drive behavior, try to drive engagement. Um, but it was really hard to compete as that space really consolidated around a few major players. Yeah, I guess independent of the way the market evolved kind of underneath you, as you reflect on the culture that you were building inside the company, the sales culture you were building inside the company, were you intentional at that time about the type of culture you wanted to build there? Or did that come later? I think we were a little bit innately. I don't think we were cognizant enough to be 
talking about our values. We weren't talking about alignment enough. We weren't sharing and being transparent enough. But I think that we were also naive enough that that some of that stuff was happening implicitly. And we had a small team and we're very product oriented company, just like Ambition is today. I think that's really in the, the DNA of us as, as three founders is it's all about product and the people who are who are ultimately building and delivering that. But yeah, I think that we could do a lot. We learned a lot, but uh, we definitely really hone in on, hey, it's us in this room. We're in this foxhole together. Let's build something really cool, which, you know, did it have an incredible exit or did it have, you know, this enormous story? Not really, but did we build something pretty valuable used by a lot of people? Definitely. You know, after Facebook and Twitter began to take that market over, you got another crack at Fireplug. Kind of the same concept, just we had taken some of the things that we learned, we tried to apply them, and we had a few options to really acquire that business into a few of these larger units or larger powerhouses. And when we looked at that, we said, do we really want to go work for someone else and do do this for them for the next you know X number of years? Or do we want to do something, you know, continue to work for ourselves and, and in a lot of ways work with the same team that we built? Obviously, we chose a ladder, which was, let's do this. Let's take the team that we have. Let's build something different. And um, did a lot of soul searching and ended up on Ambition after a few months. Got it. So the team the team sort of morphed over into Ambition. The majority of that team, especially the product side of the team, we kept it and we all stayed together. Where did the nucleus of the idea come from? Because you were going from that advertising and content space over to something you know uh, that's a little bit more meta right about internal operations where did the nucleus of the ambition idea come from you know i had this kind of ingrained experience from selling and being around this you know hp sales organization another company in the logistics space where i've been in an inside sales organization effectively and then during that consumer news phase of our career we started those two companies a big aspect of those was user engagement which we did primarily through gamification and so Travis and Jared also had a pretty, pretty strong depth of background in sales as well. And so we kind of had this, I would say it was very, very rough idea that you could make this sales process and this, this idea of selling a lot more fun and that competition was inherently a part of what people were doing, whether it was contests on whiteboards or, you know, rolling out a giant horizontal sheet of paper or going to ring a gong. These things were happening. They weren't really happening in a scalable, highly effective, highly engaging way. And so it just kind of fell into place serendipitously that, that we knew a little bit about creating that um, user engagement, that product around gamification, that we also had some background in sales. I guess right around that time, around six years ago, when you guys started that out, that was when gamification was really buzzing in all worlds, right? Not just the startup world, but in the large company world as well. I was actually having a conversation with a potential customer yesterday and we are talking about some of the loyalty programs they run and we're talking about how it's a little bit different you know we're looking at people's kpis and their coaching and the, the progress that they want to get to but it's funny is that we didn't really understand that there was this large industry of of companies doing gamification for loyalty and for like their customer base like uh, you know delta sky miles or something like that and we didn't think about it that way but uh absolutely it was happening it was becoming really big that user and employee experience space was really growing. You know, we've always said we want to stick to this really strong vertical niche, which is sales and metric and KPI driven folks, whether they be in customer service or customer support or frontline selling. 
And that's really, I think, been an advantage for us because a lot of those people, folks try to fit them into a round hole and they may be a square peg. And, and we've really focused on what they need and what their managers and the leaders of those groups want and need. Yeah. So I, I guess you're mentioning that it's kind of at least two, if not more pieces, right? And I always think of metrics on multiple levels. One is the metrics for the individual sellers and a lot of obviously comparative metrics there. The metrics for the first line managers, where you're looking obviously at team performance, but at effectiveness and productivity, and then metrics for the senior executives. Is that the way you guys think about tiering the, the dashboards and leaderboards and so on? Yeah, we want it to be really persona driven because just as you're saying, like, you know, each different stakeholder cares about different things. And um, there's like the foundational level metrics are, you know, the sales law powers. What can I go do today? Uh, I can go do these calls, I can go do these emails, I can do this messaging. And that's phenomenal. Those kind of productivity things are, are definitely essential. The next level that we think is really critical is, you know, how effective am I and how effective is my approach versus my peers or maybe an industry standard. And then, you know, you obviously want to measure the effectiveness to the ultimate outcome of, of what is this person trying to do? Are they an SDR trying to set demos and create quality meetings and drive pipeline? Or are they a field sales rep who's, you know, maybe supposed to close very large deals, but it's going to take them a lot of times and a lot of distinct steps to get there. And ultimately, we want to give a really clear picture to sales leadership, not only of how these reps and teams are performing, but how their managers are affecting those people. Are they you know, having a profound impact on their development? Are they keeping people in the seat retained? Uh, and are they keeping people happy, which is definitely critical. As, as I'm sure you understand, I understand, like headcount and, and keeping great people on your, on your team is, is one of the biggest challenges of scaling in, in the sales organizations that we work with. That's one of the biggest things that they worry about when they when they come to us is how do they retain the, the top talent they have. So is that the motivation for bringing the product in or it's just an overarching thing that they're working on? Maybe that's a sort of obvious question that it's overarching that they want to retain their employees. The initiative for the company to buy can be distinct. So sometimes it is uh, directly, I need more productivity. I'm going to use this, which that's okay. Like if that's the case, like we want to uh, create some more sophistication for that company over time. The best case is someone who says, you know, I want a more effective sales team. I'm going to do that by having better sales coaching. Uh, I'm going to use uh, the recognition and the engagement and the excitement of this product to create a better culture. And I'm going to provide better transparency and goal alignment doubts from my sales leadership to my managers, to my reps. That's the best case scenario. And an outcome and an output of that is going to be, we believe, and we've seen the, the numbers here, higher retention, higher employee satisfaction better relationship between the sales rep or the end user and a manager and better alignment of all those stakeholders all the way up to uh, you know VP of sales or CSO. Putting a couple of things that you were just mentioning together, one is, is how managers affect their people as well as those kind of one-on-one and coaching aspects of it. Almost every manager I talk to has a completely different approach to how they run sales one-on-ones. What do you guys do in terms of how you expect your managers to run their sales one-on-ones or how you advise your customers to run their one-on-ones? Most sales managers were just the best rep before and they kind of got promoted out of the seat and they were handed a clipboard and a whistle type thing. There's really not ever or very rarely we've seen as much training around what does effective sales coaching or what does effective sales management look like at insert company. The things that we really try to emphasize and try to, to create some best practices around are one, doing your one-on-ones frequently. Most organizations are doing 
when they say, do you do one-on-ones? They say, oh, we do performance reviews once or twice a year. Maybe they do something quarterly. Companies like ours obviously do that a lot, a lot more often, but if we're thinking about an enterprise client, it uh, can be pretty rare. So first step is to have tighter feedback loops. The second step is to make those coaching sessions or review sessions very data-driven. And as a corollary to that, you don't want to show up to this coaching session with being surprised by the data. You want the data ahead of time. You want to know how a rep is doing versus the, the metrics assigned to them or versus the goals that they're trying to achieve. And you want to go from the, you know, the highest level metrics that are at the top of the funnel all the way down to where are we towards our results. And then to kind of, I think, more specifically answer your question, once you have frequent one-on-ones with data, with a hopefully consistent format, you want to start to be able to look at, you know, is there a trend or is there some type of, you know, two things. One is, do I see certain metrics that folks are telling me don't matter? You know, all of a sudden the organization, something shifts in the marketplace and something that mattered six months ago is no longer as effective. You want to be able to spotlight that and say, okay, let's zig from that. Let's do something that's being more effective. I think tools like like Sales Loft can really help that. The second thing is you want to have a meta enough view as a sales leadership team to say, do I have a manager or a group of managers who are far more effective at enabling, empowering, getting results out of their team? And do I have folks who are not? Because you need to manage the managers and train the managers and coach them because ultimately they probably have one of the, one of the highest impacts on what your team is going to do and how your team is going to uh, perform. I think a mistake a lot of people make is, right, they spend all their money and time training the associates, but don't pre-train the managers on those same things. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think that's, you know, one of our theories about if you looked at the, the sales stack today and how budget is allocated, you know, I think it's great that we have phenomenal tools across that sales stack, but how many are empowering managers to be great coaches and how many are empowering them to really get alignment and really get you know, the maximum output from their team, I would debate that. And I think it's, you know, one of those things that we're going to see a shift over time as performance management, as you said about admission at the beginning of the, of the podcast, you know, that's going away from just being an HR term. And that's going to become driven by the, the vertical organization, uh, wherever that runs. So whether it's sales, marketing, product, customer support, the performance of that group, is ultimately going to roll up to the VP of sales or the CSO or the CRO. And we want to get the tools as close to those hands as possible. Yeah, agreed. It's it's all of those levels need to be looking at the information and, and circling back around to something earlier that you had mentioned on there's basically activity-related metrics as well as effectiveness-related metrics. I would love to see more of those effectiveness-related metrics. They're just harder to interpret, I think, for a lot of people, but they're among the most valuable. This is not new to anyone who follows basketball or, or football. You have things like QBR and you have PER in, in basketball. And I think we're just waking up to it's not just about quantity um, in sales. It's about quality and it's about how someone is able to create the type of, of effectiveness. And that's what's really useful in coaching. It's not just that I can come into the office and um, bang out 50 calls if I'm a you know, great hustler SDR. It is, you know, how many conversations did I have? How many of those conversations led to a positive disposition? You know, a little bit down the road, how many of those positive disposition calls became a pipeline? And did that pipeline end up closing? Did that pipeline end up retaining? 
all of this information is uh, going to really tell a lot about my performance and it's going to tell my manager areas that I can improve, whether that's with my conversation on the phone, whether it's with my qualification of the lead, all of these things. I think that's what coaching is going to go to over time. You've got all these, you know, more and more analytics companies in the market, right? But still this incredible need to understand and improve performance. But uh, you hinted at some of it. Are there, as you look into your crystal ball and as you talk to your customers, you know, where do they want to go? You said it correctly. There's, there's more data than ever because all of our tools are creating data. And we can look at how many coaching sessions happened, how many were satisfactory or less than that. What's important is what's actionable. And so is a manager able to take actionable steps and create a, you know, a workflow or some type of process to change a person's behavior and change a person's effectiveness over time? That's critical. As a leader, am I able to look at my, my team of managers or my team of uh, different roles and say, I need to somehow reorganize them or reorient them to do X, Y, and Z differently? The context is what's key. And it's not just about having, you know, a shiny dashboard with a graph on it. It's about, okay, now I know something. What kind of actions can I take to affect the outcome? And can I do that in a repeatable, sustainable way? I think the thing that people fear in B2B sales is you wake up some morning and it just tells you precisely everything to do in very rote fashion. You know, we have a sales workflow tool and we'd still desperately want people to take the time to use their brains and personalize and research so that they can make genuine connections with people. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's the authentic part of sales. You know, how do you use this tool to be more productive and effective? And to do that, you're going to have to be authentic with the conversations you have and authentic with how you represent yourself in the company. And did you take the time to do research before a call or before um, sending an email, just like we want to do with, um, you know, a coaching session or a management touch point. You know, those things need to be organic and they need to be real just because it says Brian is trending down or Brian has some type of, of issue you need to address. You know, I don't think, you know, we're, we're in a place where it's say, the machine is saying, you know, this person needs to be docked a thousand dollars from their paycheck. It's all about like, how do we get together and come to a, you know, what we call an action plan to change that behavior or change the effect we're having to ultimately get the results we want. As you reflect internally on, on the sales cultures you've built, what do you think is the most important thing that you can do in building a healthy team? I think you've got to create really uh, a sense of alignment and a sense of value for everyone that they are contributing and they're a part of the success. They're a part of a bigger story. And so you want to make sure that everyone can see, you know, here's where we're going. Here's all of the things that have to happen for us to be able to get there. Here are the things that you have to do to help us go uh, achieve that. And then I'm not only going to be really transparent with that, but I'm also going to hold you accountable to it. And I'm going to, uh, you know, try to have some fun with us getting through that journey uh, as a team. So I think those are the things you can do, whether you use ambition or whether you use a spreadsheet and it's a lot harder work, but it can happen and it can be something that's, that's done um, tomorrow. Yeah, I think that's brilliant. I think it's also so important in the recruiting process as well to let people know what that story is and and they will self-select in or self-select out based on whether they believe that story. Once again, I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Laura Hall is our executive producer. Our artwork is by Greg Klingshern. This episode was edited by Peter Lopinto. 
Subscribe to us on your favorite app to learn more immediately actionable best practices from our awesome guests. Thanks for listening to the Hey Salespeople podcast.